5. Why messages were exchanged to prove that the machine really spoke. At Anadir's Captain Cannon arranged a small battery and held in his pocket the key that controlled the circuit. Then the marvel began. The instrument told when persons entered or left the room, when anything was taken from the table without permission, or any impropriety committed, even covered with a piece of deer skin. It could see distinctly, with the human tendency to ascribe to the devil anything not understood. These natives looked upon the telegraph as supernatural, as it showed no desire to harm them. They exhibited no fear but abundance of respect. The Chukchis and Koryaks are credible workers in metals and ivory. I saw animal representations rudely but well cut in ivory, and spearheads that would do credit to any blacksmith. Their hunting knives, made from hoop iron, are well fashioned, and some of the handles are tastefully inlaid with copper, brass, and silver. In trimming their garments they are very skillful, and cut bits of deerskin into various fantastic shapes. At Gigiga I bought a Kalanka, intending to wear it in my winter travel. Its sleeves were purposely very long, and the hood had a wide fringe of dogskin to shield the face. I could never put the thing on with ease, and ultimately sold it to a curiosity hunter. Gloves and mittens, lined with squirrel skin, are made at Gigiga, and worn in all the region within a thousand miles. A great hindrance to winter travel in northeastern Siberia is the prevalence of purgas or snowstorms with wind, on the bleak tundras where there is no shelter, the purgas sweep with pitiless severity, some last but a few hours, with the thermometer 10 or 20 degrees below zero, sometimes the wind takes up whole masses of snow and forms drifts several feet deep in a few moments, travelers, dogs, and sledges are frequently buried out of sight, and remain in the snow till the storm is over, dogs begin to howl at the approach of a purga, Long before men can see any indication of it, they display a tendency to burrow in the snow if the wind is cold and violent. Purgas do not occur at regular intervals, but are most prevalent in February and March. A few years ago a party of Koryaks crossing the great tundra north of Kamchatka encountered a severe storm. It was of unusual violence, and soon compelled a halt. Dogs and men burrowed into the snow to wait the end of the gale, and fortunately they halted in a wide hollow that and perceived by the party, filled with a deep drift, the snow contains so much air that it is not difficult to breathe in it at a considerable depth, and the accumulation of a few feet is not alarming, hour after hour passed, and the place grew darker, till two men of the party thought it well to look outside, digging to the surface, the depth proved much greater than expected, quite exhausted with their labor, they gained the open air, and found the storm had not ceased. Alarmed for their companions they tried to reach them, but the hole where they ascended was completely filled, the snow drifted rapidly, and they were obliged to change their position often to keep near the surface. When the purga ended they estimated it had left 50 feet of snow in that spot, again endeavoring to rescue their companions, and in their weak condition finding it impossible, they sought the nearest camp. In the following summer the remains of men and dogs were found where the melting snow left them. They had huddled close together, and probably perished from suffocation. Chapter VIII. We remained four days at Gijiga and then sailed for Ohotsk. For two days we seemed to get well out of the bay, and then stopped the engine's air depended upon canvas. A boy who once offered a dog for sale was asked the breed of the pup. He was a pointer, replied the youth, but father cut off his ears and tail last week and made a bulldog of him, lowering the chimney and hoisting the screw. The Yariag became a sailing ship, though her steaming propensities remained.
just as the artificial bulldog undoubtedly retained the pointer instinct. The ship had an advantage over the animal in her ability to resume her old character at pleasure. On the fourth day, during a calm, we were surrounded by seagulls like those near San Francisco. We made deep sea soundings and obtained specimens of the bottom from depths of two or three hundred fathoms. Near the entrance of Gigi Bay we brought up coral from eighty fathoms of water, and refuted the theory that coral grows only in the tropics and at a depth of less than two hundred feet. The specimens were both white and red, resembling the moss-like sprigs often seen in museums. The temperature of the water was 47 degrees Fahrenheit. Captain Lund told me coral had been found in the Okhotsk Sea in latitude 55 degrees in a bed of considerable extent. Every day when come we made soundings, which were carefully recorded for the use of Russian chart makers. Once we found that the temperature of the bottom at a depth of 200 fathoms was at the freezing point of water. The doctor proposed that a bottle of champagne should be cooled in the marine refrigerator. The bottle was attached to the lead and thrown overboard. I send champagne to Neptune, said the doctor. He drink him and he be happy. When the lead returned to the surface it came alone. Neptune drank the champagne and retained the bottle as a souvenir. One day the sailors caught a gull and painted it red. When the bird was released he greatly alarmed his companions. And as long as we could see them, they shunned his society. At least 80 miles from land we had a dozen sparrows around us at once. A small hawk seized one of these birds and seated himself on a spar for the purpose of breakfasting. A fowling piece brought him to the deck, where we examined and pronounced him of the genus Falco, species Nysus, or in plain English, a sparrow hawk. During the day we saw three varieties of small birds, one of them resembling the American robin. The sailors caught two in their hands, and released them without injury. Approaching Ohotska fog bank shut out the land for an hour or two, and when it lifted we discovered the harbor. A small sandbar intervened between the ocean and the town, but did not intercept the view. As at Petropavlovsk, the church was the most prominent object and formed an excellent landmark. With my glass I surveyed the line of coast where the surf was breaking, but was long unable to discover an entering place. The Ohota River is the only harbor and entirely inaccessible to a ship like the Variag. Descending the ship's side after we entered, I jumped when the boat was falling and went down five or six feet before alighting. Both hands were blistered as the gangway ropes passed through them, keeping the beacons carefully in line. We rolled over the bar on the top of a high wave, and then followed the river channel to the landing. Many years ago Okhotsk was the most important Russian port on the waters leading to the Pacific. Supplies for Kamchatka and Russian America were brought over land from Yakutsk and shipped to Petropavlovsk, Sitka, and other points under Russian control. Many ships for the Pacific Ocean and Ohotsk Sea were built there. I was shown the spot where Bering's vessel was constructed, with its cordage and extra sails of deerskin, and its caulking of moss. Billings' expedition in a ship called Russia's Glory, was organized here for an exploration of the Arctic Ocean. At one time the government had foundries and workshops at Ohotsk. The shallowness of water on the bar was a great disadvantage, as ships drawing more than 12 feet were unable to enter. Twenty years ago the government abandoned Ohotsk for Ion, and when the Amor was opened it gave up the latter place. The population, formerly exceeding 2,000, is now less than 200. We landed on a gravelly beach, where we were met by a crowd of Cossacks and Lamuni. The almond-shaped eyes and high cheekbones of the latter betray their Mongolian origin. As I walked among them each hailed me with strizzed, 
the Russian for good morning. I endeavored to reply with the same word, but my pronunciation was far from accurate. Near these natives there were several Yakuts and Tungus, with physiognomies unlike the others. The Russian Empire contains more races of men than any rival government, and we frequently find the population of a single locality made up from two or more branches of the human family. In this little town with not more than ten or twelve dozens of inhabitants, there were the representatives of the Slavonic, the Tartar, and the Mongolian races. We found Captain Mithid, of the Telegraph Service, in a quiet residence, where he had passed the summer in comparative idleness. He had devoted himself to exploring the country around Ohotsk and studying the Russian language. We don't expect to starve at present, said the captain. Providence sends us fish. The emperor sends us flour. And the merchants furnish tea and sugar. We have lived so long on a simple bill of fare that we are almost unfitted for any other. We had a lunch of dried fish, tea, whiskey, and cigars. And soon after went to take tea at a house where most of the very ags officers were assembled. The house was the property of three brothers, who conducted the entire commerce of Okhotsk. The floor of the room where we were feasted was of hewn plank, fastened with enormous nails, and appeared able to resist anything short of an earthquake. The windows were double to keep out the winter's cold, but on that occasion they displayed a profusion of flower pots. The walls were papered, and many pictures were hung upon them. Every part of the room was scrupulously clean. Three ladies were seated on a sofa, and a fourth occupied a chair near them. The three were the wives of the merchant brothers, and the fourth a visiting friend. One with black eyes and hair was dressed tastefully and even elaborately. The eldest, who acted as hostess, was in black, and her case in receiving visitors would have done credit to a society dame in St. Petersburg. By way of commencement we had tea and nalifka, the latter a kind of currant wine of local manufacture and very well flavored. They gave us corned beef and bread, each person taking his plate upon his knee as at an American picnic, and after two or three courses of edibles we had coffee and cigarettes, the latter from a manufactory at Yakutsk. According to Russian etiquette each of us thanked the hostess for her courtesy. Out in the broad street there were many dogs lying idle in the sunshine or biting each other. A small wagon with a team of nine dogs carried a quantity of tea and sugar from the very ags boats to a warehouse. When the work was finished I took a ride on the wagon, and was carried at good speed. I enjoyed the excursion until the vehicle upset and left me sprawling on the gravel with two or three bruises and a prejudice against that kind of traveling. By the time I gained my feet the dogs were disappearing in the distance, and fairly running away from the driver. Possibly they are running yet. An old weather-beaten church and equally old barracks are near each other. An appropriate arrangement in a country where church and state are united. The military garrison includes 30 Cossacks, who are under the orders of the Ispravnik. They row the pilot boat when needed, travel on courier or other service, guard the warehouses, and when not wanted by government labor and get drunk for themselves. The governor was a native of Poland, and it struck me as a curious fact that the Ispravniks of Kamchatka, Gijiga, and Ohotsk were Poles. Cows and dogs are the only stock maintained at Ohotsk, the former live on grass in summer and on hay and fish in whiter, though repeatedly told that cows and horses in northeastern Siberia would eat dried fish with avidity. I was inclined to skepticism. Captain Mitha told me he had seen them eating fish in winter and appearing to thrive on it. What was more singular, he had seen a cow eating fresh salmon in summer when the hills were covered with grass. 
There is a story that Kuvay in a fit of illness, once imagined his satanic majesty standing before him. Ah, said the great naturalist. Horns, hoops, granaries, needn't fear him. I wonder if Kuvay knew the taste of the cows at Ohotsk. No ship had visited Ohotsk for nearly a year before our arrival, though half a dozen whalers had passed in sight. A steamer goes annually from the Amor with a supply of flour and salt on government account. The mail comes once a year, so that the postmaster has very little to do for 364 days. Sometimes the mail misses, and then people must wait another 12 months for their letters. What a nice residence it would be for a young man whose sweetheart at a distance writes him every day. He would get 365 letters at once, and in the case of a missing mail, 730 of them. Bears are quite numerous around Ohotsk, and their dispositions do not savor of gentleness. Only a few days before our visit a native was partly devoured within two miles of town. Many of the dogs are shrewd enough to catch their own fish, but have not learned how to cure them for winter use. When at Ohotsk I went to the bank of the river as the tide was coming in and watched the dogs at their work, waiting on the sandbars and mud flats till the water was almost over their backs. They stood like statues for several minutes, waiting till a salmon was fairly within reach. A dog would snap at him with such accuracy of aim that he rarely missed. I kept my eye on a shaggy brute that stood with little more than his head out of water. His eyes were in a fixed position, and for twelve or fifteen minutes he did not move a muscle. Suddenly his head disappeared, and after a brief struggle he came to shore with a ten-pound salmon in his jaws. None of the cows are skilled in salmon catching. Two or three years ago a mail carrier from Ayan to Yakutsk was visited by a bear during a night halt. The mail bag was lying by a tree a few steps from the Cossack, and near the bank of a brook. The bear seized and opened the pouch, regardless of the government seal on the outside. After turning the leper package several times in his paws, he tossed it into the brook. The Cossack discharged his pistol to frighten the bear, and then fished the lepers from the water. It is proper to say the package was addressed to an officer somewhat famous for his bear hunting proclivities. When we left Ohotsk at the close of day, we took Captain Mitted and the governor to dine with us, and when our guests departed we hoisted anchor and steamed away. Captain Lund burned a blue light as a farewell signal, and we could see an answering fire on shore. Our course lay directly southward, and when our light was extinguished we were barely visible through the distance and gloom. But true to our course, though our shadow grow dark, we'll trim our broad sail as before, and stand by the rudder that governs the bark, nor ask how we look from the shore. Chapter IX. On the Ohotsk Sea we had comes with light winds, and made very slow progress. One day while the men were exercising at the guns, the lookout reported a sail. We were just crossing the course from Ayan to Gijiga, and were in the Danzig's track. The strange vessel shortened sail and stood to meet us, and before long we were satisfied it was our old acquaintance. At sunset we were several miles apart and nearing very slowly. The night was one of the finest I ever witnessed at sea, the moon full and not a cloud visible, and the wind carrying us four or five miles an hour. The brig was lying to, and we passed close under her stern, shortening our sail as we approached her. Everybody was on deck and curious to learn the news. S-T-R-A-S-T-V-D-H, shouted Captain Lund when we were in hearing distance. S-T-R-A-S-T-V-D-H, responded the clear voice of Philip Hughes, and then followed the history of the Danzig's voyage. We had a good voyage to Ayan, and stayed there four days. We are five days out, 
and passed through Havigail on the second day, going to Gijiga. Then we replied with the story of our cruise and asked for news from Europe. War in progress. France and Austria against Prussia, Italy, and Russia. No particulars. By this time the ships were separated and our conversation ended. It was conducted in Russian, but I knew enough of the language to comprehend what was said. There was a universal, hey, of astonishment as the important sentence was completed. Here were momentous tidings, France and Russia taking part in a war that was not begun when I left America. A French fleet was in Japanese waters and might be watching for us. It had two ships, either of them stronger than the Variag. As the Danzig disappeared we went below. I hoped to go home at the end of this voyage, said the captain as we seated around his table, but we must now remain in the Pacific. War has come and may give us glory or the grave, possibly both. For an hour we discussed the intelligence and the probabilities of its truth. As we separated, Captain Lund repeated with emphasis his opinion that the news was false. I do not believe it, said he, but I must prepare for any emergency. In the wardroom the officers were exultant over the prospect of promotion and prize money. The next day the men were exercised at the guns, and for the rest of the voyage they could not complain of ennui. The deck was cleared of all superfluous rubbish, and we were ready for a battle. The shop case for the signal books was made ready, and other little preparations attended to. I seemed carried back to my days of war, and had vivid recollections of being stormed at with shot and shell. From Ohotsk to the mouth of the Amur is a direct course of about 400 miles. A light draft steamer would have made short work of it, but we drew too much water to enter the northern passage. So we were forced to sail through Loparau's Straits and up the Gulf of Tartary to Decastries Bay. The voyage was more than 1,200 miles in length, and had several turnings. It was like going from New York to Philadelphia through Harrisburg, or from Paris to London through Brussels and Edinburgh. A good wine came to our relief and took us rapidly through Loparau's Straits. There is a high rock in the middle of the passage covered with sea lions, like those near San Francisco. In nearly all weather the roaring of these creatures can be heard, and is a very good substitute for a fog bell. I am not aware that any government allows a subsidy to the sea lions. We saw the northern coast of Japan and the southern end of Sakhalin, both faint and shadowy in the fog and distance. The wine freshened to a gale, and we made twelve knots an hour under double-reefed mainsails and topsails. In the narrow straits we escaped the heavy waves encountered at sea in a similar breeze turning at right angles in the Gulf of Tartary. We began to roll until walking was no easy matter. The wind abetted so that by night we shook out our reefs and spread the royals and two gallant sails to keep up our speed. As we approached Decastries the question of war was again discussed. If I find only one French ship there, said the captain, I shall proceed. If there are two I cannot fight them, and must run to San Francisco or some other neutral port. Just then San Francisco was the last place I desired to visit, but I knew I must abide the fortunes of war. We talked of the possibility of convincing a French captain that we were engaged in an international enterprise, and therefore not subject to capture. Anasoth joined me in arranging a plan to cover contingencies. As we approached Decastries we could see the spars of a large ship over the islands at the entrance of the harbor. A moment later she was announced. A corvette. With steam up. She displayed her flag on English 1. As we dropped anchor in the harbor a boat came to us, and an officer mounted the side and descended to the cabin. The ship proved to be the British corvette Scylla, just ready to sail for Japan. 
Escaping her we did not encounter Charybdis. The mission of the Scylla was entirely pacific, and her officer informed us there had been war between Prussia and Austria. But at last accounts all Europe was at peace. The war of 1866 was finished long before I knew of its commencement. De Castries Bay is on the Gulf of Tartary, 135 miles from Nikolaevsk. Loperaus discovered and surveyed it in 1787, and named it in honor of the French Minister of Marine. It is in Lat. 51 degrees 28 and long, 140 degrees 49 e and affords good and safe anchorage. Near the entrance are several islands, which protect ships anchored behind them. The largest of these islands is occupied as a warehouse and coal depot, and has an observatory and signal station visible from the Gulf. The town is small, containing altogether less than 50 buildings. It is a kind of ocean port to Nikolaevsk and the Amor River. But the settlement was never a flourishing one. Twelve miles from the landing is the end of Lake Kizi, which opens into the Amor a hundred and fifty miles from its mouth. It was formerly the custom to send couriers by way of Lake Kizi and the Amor to Nikolaevsk to notify consigners and officials of the arrival of ships. Now the telegraph is in operation and supersedes the courier. In 1855 an English fleet visited De Castries in pursuit of some Russian vessels known to have ascended the Gulf. When the fleet came in sight there were four Russian ships in port, and a few shots were exchanged, none of them taking effect. During a heavy fog in the following night and day the Russians escaped and ascended the Straits of Tartary toward the Amor. The Aurora, the largest of these ships, threw away her guns, anchors, and every heavy article, and succeeded in entering the Amor. The English lay near De Castries, and could not understand where the Russians had gone, as the southern entrance of the Amor was then unknown to geographers. We reached this port on the morning of September 11th. The Variag could go no further owing to her draft of water, but fortunately the Morje, a gunboat of the Siberian fleet, was to sail for Nikolaevsk at noon, and we were happily disappointed in our expectations of waiting several days at De Castries. About eleven o'clock I left the Variag and accompanied Captain Lund, the doctor, and Mr. Onassoff into the boat dancing at the side ladder. Half an hour after we boarded the Morje she was underway, and we saw the officers and men of the corvette waving us farewell. The Morje drew eight feet of water, and was admirably adapted to the seacoast service. There were several vessels of this class in the Siberian fleet, and their special duty was to visit the ports of Kamchatka northeastern Siberia, and Manjuria, and act as tow boats along the Straits of Tartary. The officers commanding them are sent from Russia, and generally remain ten years in this service. At the end of that time, if they wish to retire they can do so and receive half pay for the rest of their lives. This privilege is not granted to officers in other squadrons, and is given on the Siberian station in consequence of the severer duties and the distance from the centers of civilization. In its military service the government makes inducements of pay and promotion to young officers who go to Siberia. I frequently met officers who told me they had sought appointments in the Asiatic department in preference to any other. The pay and allowances are better than in European Russia. Promotion is more rapid, and the necessities of life are generally less costly. Duties are more onerous and privations are greater. But these drawbacks are of little consequence to an enterprising and ambitious soldier. The Morje had no accommodations for passengers, and the addition to her complement was something serious. Captain Lund, the doctor, Mr. Onassoff, and myself were guests of her captain. 
The cabin was given to us to arrange as best we could. My proposal to sleep under the table was laughed at as impracticable. I knew what I was about, having done the same thing years before on Mississippi steamers, when you must sleep on the floor where people may walk about. Always get under the table if possible. You run less risk of receiving boot heels in your mouth and eyes, and whole acres of brogans in your ribs. The navigation of the Straits of Tartary is very intricate, the water being shallow and the channel tortuous. From De Castries to Cape Catherine there is no difficulty, but beyond the Cape the channel winds like the course of the Ohio, and at many points bends quite abruptly. The government has surveyed and buoyed it with considerable care, so that a good pilot can take a light draft steamer from De Castries to Nikolaevsk in 12 or 15 hours. Sailing ships are greatly retarded by headwinds and calms, and often spend weeks on the voyage. In 1857 Major Collins was 19 days on the bark bearing from one of these ports to the other. In the Straits we passed four vessels, one of them 30 days from De Castries and only half through the worst of the passage. The water shoals so rapidly in some places that it is necessary to sound on both sides of the ship at once. Vessels drawing less than 10 feet can pass to the Okhotsk Sea around the northern end of Sakhalin Island, but the channel is even more crooked than the southern one. We entered at sunset, and did not move till daybreak, at the hour of sunset, on this vessel as on the corvette, we had the evening chant of the service of the Eastern Church, while it was in progress a sentinel on duty over the cabin held his musket in his left hand and made the sign of the cross with his right, soldier and Christian at the same moment, he observed the outward ceremonial of both, the crew, with uncovered beads, stood upon the deck and chanted the prayer. As the prayer was uttered the national flag, lowered from the mast, seemed, like those beneath it, to bow in adoration of the being who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand, and guides and controls the universe. While passing the Straits of Tartary we observed a mirage of great beauty, that pictured the shores of Sakhalin like a tropical scene. We seemed to distinguish cocoa and palm trees, dark forests and waving fields of cane, along the rocky shores, that were really below the horizon. Then there were castles, with lofty walls and frowning battlements, cloud-capped towers, gorgeous palaces, and solemn temples, rising among the fields and forests, and overarched with curious combinations of rainbow hues. The mirage frequently occurs in this region, but I was told it rarely attained such beauty as on that occasion. Sakhalin Island, which separates the Gulf of Tartary from the Okhotsk Sea extends through nine degrees of latitude and belongs partly to Russia and partly to Japan. The Japanese have settlements in the southern portion, engaging in trade with the natives and catching and curing fish. The natives are of Tungus origin, like those of the lower Andor, and subsist mainly upon fish. The Russians have settlements at Cape Dui, where there is excellent coal in veins 18 feet thick and quite near the coast. Russia desired the entire island, but the Japanese positively refused to negotiate. Some years ago the Siberian authorities established a colony near the southern extremity, but its existence was brief. At three o'clock in the afternoon of September 11th we entered the mouth of the Anor, the great river of Asiatic Russia. The entrance is between two capes or headlands, seven miles apart and two or three hundred feet high. The southern one, near which we passed, is called Cape Prong, and has a Gilyak village at its base. Below this cape the hills border the gulf and frequently show precipitous sides. The shallow water at their base renders the land indesirable for settlement. The timber is small and indicates the severity of the cold seasons. 
In their narrowest part the straits are eight miles wide and frozen in winter. The natives have a secure bridge of ice for at least four months of the year. Castries Bay is generally filled with ice and in safe for vessels from October to March. From the time we entered the Gulf of Tartary the water changed its color, growing steadily dirtier until we reached the Amur. At the mouth of the river I found it a weak tea complexion, like the Ohio at its middle stage, and was told that it varied through all the shades common to rivers according to its height and the circumstances of season. I doubt if it ever assumes the hue of the Missouri or the Sacramento, though it is by no means impossible. Passing Cape Prong and looking up the river, a background of hills and mountains made a fine landscape with beautiful lights and shadows from the afternoon sun. The channel is marked with stakes and buoys and with beacons along the shore. The pilots when steering frequently turned their backs to the bow of the steamer and watched the beacons over the stern. As we approached Nikolaevsh there was a mirage that made the ships in port appear as if anchored in the town itself. We passed Chinirak, the fortress that guards the river, and is surrounded, as if for concealment, with a grove of trees. Along the bank above Chinirak there are warehouses of various kinds, all belonging to government. Soon after dark we anchored before the town, and below several other vessels. My sea travel was ended till I should reach Atlantic waters. Chapter X at Nikolaevsk is half a mile from the anchorage to the shore. A sand spit projects from the lower end of the town and furnishes a site for government workshops and foundries. Above this tongue of land the water is shallow and allows only light draft and flat bottom boats to come to the piers. All seagoing vessels remain, in midstream, where they are discharged by lighters. There is deeper water both above and below the town, and I was told that a change of site had been meditated. The selection of the spot where Nikolaevsk stands was owing to the advantages of the sand spin as a protection to river boats. After dining on the Morjan we went on shore, and landed at a flight of wooden steps in the side of a pier. The piers of Nikolaevsk are constructed with cribs about 20 feet apart and strong timbers connecting them. The flooring was about 6 feet above water, and wide enough for two teams to pass. Turning to the left at the end of the pier. We found a plank sidewalk ascending a sloping road in the hillside. The pier reminded me of Boston or New York, but it lacked the huge warehouses and cheerful hackmen to render the similarity complete. This is Natchez, Mississippi, I said as we moved up the hill, and this is Cairo, Illinois. As my feet struck the plank sidewalk, the sloping road came to an end sooner than at Natchez, and the sidewalk did not reveal any pitfalls like those in.